If you have your Bible, we're in Mark, the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 12 of Mark, starting in verse 18. Let me uh, tease you with a question, okay? Um, How much time do you ever give to the thought of life after death? Now, I I suppose um, some more than others, but to be fair, I don't know if we spend a lot of time talking about it. I found a little, like, a poll that CBS News did just last year on this subject matter. And they concluded that over half of the people they asked don't ever consider life after death at all. Like, I think it was 54% or something like that. And then they kind of forced the issue when they were asking questions. Now, we want you to think about it. What do you believe about life after death? And, and in that specific situation, 75% of them say, we believe that there's something. Heaven or hell, there, there, there's something to come. And of that number of people, um, the majority of them felt like heaven was their destination. Okay? Now, well, there's several percentages in there where people go, I don't believe in either, or, or I don't believe in hell at all. Heaven, heaven's the only option. But for the most part, if they were forced to think about it, I'm okay with something after, and I think where I'm going is, is heaven. That's how this, this poll went. The question of what happens to us after we die, I think is a question everybody needs to figure out. I think it's one of the questions of living is what happens when it's over. And it probably couldn't be more relevant for some people if you're dealing with sickness, which I've talked to so many people who are dealing with something like a cancer. And I suppose when that hits you, you ask all those questions. Am I here for a short period of time or a long period of time? Sometimes it is because we've lost a loved one. And just someone else's death makes us ask questions about our our death. To some, we live in a day and age where there isn't any hope coming from our world. There's no sense of things getting better. And so maybe with terrorism here or ISIS there, it just makes you think about how is this all going to come to an end and where am I going to be in in all of it? I think that makes sense at a time like this. But the essence of the question of what happens to us after we die really boils down to two basic answers. One is nothing. I believe in nothing. We're annihilated. It's over, right? We live, we die, and and that's it. Or you you believe there's something to come. I suppose if we were just to lay it out, those are our options. In fact, most religions in the world have their versions of more to come, whether it be Hinduism or Buddhism. They kind of believe that you just keep recycling until you reach some kind of enlightenment. At At least this understanding that you have things comprehended or figured out and there's peace with the universe or... If you happen to be Buddhist, the whole goal is to get to nirvana, which simply means extinction. It means blown out. So what you're working for is to not exist, which I don't get the attraction there. Um, Or or Islam, for instance, they, they really believe that there is a judgment at hand and that God rewards based on human effort and works. And your reward, if you have enough good works, is that you get pleasure, like physical pleasure in heaven, 72 virgins for men, and that's, I suppose... That's why um, it's attractive to them. Or, or Mormonism, for instance, they say that marriage is celestial and, and enables you to populate other planets and work your way to deity. So you can become a god of your own little world if, if you believe in the afterlife, okay? Well, Jesus taught something radically different, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know. He talks about life after death for everyone. Maybe existence is a better word. And the idea that for those, and it all depends on what you do with Jesus, okay? If you reject Jesus and his offering, then your existence is this thing called judgment. 
living your entire existence under the weight of God's holiness and judgment for your rejection of Jesus. And to those of us who put our faith and trust in Christ, there is this thing called in the presence of God, free from sin and death and enjoying him forever. So the essence of the question, what comes next, is the question that's dealt in our encounter that Jesus has with another group of leaders in, in this text today. Those two viewpoints... Nothing's going to happen or something's going to happen. Face off between Jesus and the Sadducees starting here in, in verse 18, okay? Now, before we read it, let me, let me build context again. So if you haven't been here for a week or two, you, you'll know where this fits in the storyline. But we are in the last week of Jesus' life. This is the, this last Passion Week, and it's possibly Tuesday or Wednesday of his life. Um, he started the week on a really good note. Coming in on the triumphal entry, people ascribing to him, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, good, good day. First thing he does is march into the temple and throw everything over, okay? Um, that didn't turn out so good, at least for the leaders that were there. He tells a parable that clearly was understood by the leadership at that time that you're the ones that God's going to reject. And so there's this growing tension. And the organized plan to do away with Jesus has begun. And it's begun with these three confrontations that we're in the middle of. If you were here last week, we saw how the Pharisees and the Herodians came after Jesus with a question that was designed to trap Jesus. It was a, it was a no-win question, okay? This week, we're dealing with the Sadducees with another question, they think, uh, equals the shame of Christ, and it's dealing with the afterlife. And, and next week, we're going to see that the scribes come again. So all three waves of the Sanhedrin, all the people that make up the leadership of Israel, are now making their way to Jesus to confront him with these questions to undermine him in front of the people, okay? To discredit him or, or accuse him. Now, it, I don't know if you were here last week. I'm not going to go through it to, to, to describe it. I think it's helpful. It's helpful to understand the Sanhedrin, uh, why they're asking the questions they're asking, what's their attack, what's their angle, what are they doing here? If you haven't, you might want to go back and listen to last week's uh, message on that. But anyway, that's what's going on here. Now, if you liked last week's outline, I've got another one for you. If you like five points, here we go again. I think it's going to lay out pretty easy. Uh, five simple observations of this text. We're going to look at the antagonists, the trick question, Jesus' assessment of the problem, his answer to the question, and then the hope of the world. That's the simple outline today. So let, let's read it, capture the thought and what's going on in our minds, and then we'll pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Starting in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. And when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray together. 
God, there are so many obstacles to understanding and hearing from your word today. Cluttered minds um, show up in church. Lack of understanding shows up at church. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us today and capture our attention, remind us of the reality of the resurrection, that your promise will come to fruition for those who trust in Christ. I pray that it brings hope and joy to the hearts of your church. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's deal with the outline. The first thing I want you to notice is the antagonist. Who are the players in this story? Verse 18 just start, tells us quite plainly that it's the Sadducees who came to him who say this is their doctrine. This is what they believe. There is no resurrection. Now, let me just remind you again of the Sadducees and tell you why this is such an um, interesting argument for them. These, uh, this group of leaders is the smallest number but yet most powerful sect of all the Jewish leadership, okay? They controlled all the buying and, and all the selling and everything that went on in the temple, which explains why they're here and why they're upset. Because Jesus is the one who went into the temple shortly after rising in Jerusalem and blew it all up. He confronted all the hypocrisy and all the idols and, and totally confronted the hearts of these particular group of men, the, the Sadducees. These men also controlled the priesthood. Um, all the high priests and all the chief priests were made up of the Sadducees, okay? They were the majority number of the Sanhedrin that we talked about e even last week. They were the most wealthy. They were the most arrogant group of people there. They were friendly to Rome. They thought they were better than everybody else. They were rude, harsh, and insensitive. These are bad things if you're a leader, all right? Um, they didn't care at all for the common man. Therefore, you can know what the ricochet of that was. The common man couldn't care less about them. They were, not, they were despised for their theology, too, because they were alone in this position about the resurrection. In their minds, okay, they only held to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't hold to, to the interpretation or the Talmud, all the ways in which the, the Pharisees said you were supposed to live this law out. They ignored that, okay? They denied all things supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in Satan or, or miracles or heaven or hell. They didn't believe anything about a future judgment to come or any kind of life after death. They did not believe in the resurrection. And obviously Mark tells us that here in verse 18, those who did not believe. And because they didn't believe in, in life after death, they only lived for the moment, and they were known for their money and their power. I suppose we could stop right there and say, what is a great way to describe America? <laughs> I suppose if we're going to deny the existence of the supernatural, how would you live if it was only up to you and only up to today? You might accumulate stuff like wealth, and you might take a position like power because there's no thoughts about tomorrow. There's no thoughts about supernatural, a God in heaven or judgment to come. I'm just on my own only for this moment. So go for it, right? Makes sense? So that's, a, that's probably a narrative that we could share. Our culture would share with the Sadducees, okay? So that's the antagonist. These are the ones who are now coming with this second wave of confrontation to Jesus, okay? Now, let's look at the second observation, and I'm just calling it the trick question. All right, verses 19 through 23. Let me read it again and tell you why I think it's a trick question. Teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. 
Okay, now here's the question. Um, the question was, was this law. And here's why, here's why it's trick, because it was anchored in truth. In, in, in fact, in Deuteronomy 25, let me read it for you. Um, you will see the law that they held to. And that's where this question comes from. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, this is what the Lord says. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's, a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his may, name may not be blotted out from Israel. Great question if you start with truth. The reason why it's a trick question because it starts anchored in the law, right? It's what they believed. It's called a, a leveret marriage. That's what they held on to, okay? But th there's another aspect to this that made it powerful or at least tricky. It's exampled all over the law. If you, if you go to Genesis 38, you don't have to turn there, the small little story of the lineage of God's people, right? That Abraham had the son Isaac. Isaac had the son Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. We're familiar with Joseph. But the fourth son of his first wife, Leah, was Judah. And, and, and Judah got a wife for his son, Ur, and it was Tamar. But the text tells us that God looked at Ur and said, he's a wicked man, he's got to go, and he just killed him. And so we see in this narrative that Judah goes and gets his, his younger brother and says, now you fulfill your duty. Now he refused to do that, but it was clearly not only taught as law in, in the scriptures, but it was exampled all, all, all over the scriptures as well. Now, to us, it's a very strange uh, custom, but here's why they did it. It's kind of implied there in that uh, Deuteronomy passage, to keep the family going, to preserve the inheritance together, and to keep out the strangers. And strangers, I mean um, this intermarriage with those who aren't of God. So they would control the future of this family's name and control the inheritance of this family's name if they simply did that transfer. Wife becomes the brother's wife who will fulfill the duties of a husband, and on it, and it goes. Okay? So they bring up this law in the first half of the question, and, and it sounds legitimate because it's anchored in the law, this practice of leveret marriage. But they follow it by a crazy scenario, which makes the, tr the question a tricky question. The scenario they bring up is a no-win scenario. Let's say there are seven brothers, and they all die, and she's married to all of them. You believe in the resurrection. Who will she belong to? Get the, get the scenario, okay? It's an absurd question. I think it was a question that they probably used over and over again to frustrate the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection. They just kind of threw it down as a gauntlet, like, you can't answer this. And because you can't answer this, then your teaching on the resurrection and future has no credibility, you don't have an answer, and here's why. Because the Pharisees believed that future life and resurrection was simply a continuation of this life. Here's what life tomorrow will be like, just our family doing life in the future, just continuation. you got a problem. you got one wife and a lot of husbands. How would you answer this? And, and probably having used this many times with, with the Pharisees, they bring it up to Jesus as this, okay, we get to embarrass him in front, of the, in front of the crowds. The people will know he has no answer. The people will know that he's not speaking for God um, because the, the question can't be answered. You're just going to look stupid if you, if you try and embarrass yourself, okay? 
So therein lies the tricky question, but Jesus doesn't answer the question first. He assesses a problem in verse 24, if you'd look at it with me. Here's what he says. Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? At first glance, verse 24 seems really strange. Because you, you would declare something wrong if it was a statement. How do you declare a question wrong? A question is just a question, answer it, however you want to answer it. But, but I think there's something that's kind of missing but implied in the text. I think verse 15 of, of chapter 12 should be inserted right here. If you remember verse 15, the text tells us that Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, knowing the, the intention of the heart, and the intention of the question was used to try to trap or defame Jesus, that should fit there too because that's why he jumps right into this assessment of the problem. You're trying to take me down in front of the people, okay? You're trying to discredit me, embarrass me, to make fun of me, to make fun of the resurrection, right? And they knew that Jesus believed it, and they knew that Jesus taught it. They have hung around, at least on the edges, or had people report back, here's what he said today. And, and we don't have the time to go back to all these proof texts, but, but in John chapter 11, it's probably the most poignant teaching of Jesus on the future life When he talks about the resurrection, I think in sequence, if you want to talk about where it fits in the story narrative, it's probably somewhere in Mark 10. So we've already been through this moment of Jesus' teaching, and and nevertheless, this is what he talks about. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, will live again. That's what Jesus said about the future. They knew that. In Mark chapter 8, when he's talking about his own suffering to come, the kind of story that the disciples wanted no part of, he said, listen, the Son of Man must give his life. He must suffer. He must be killed. But don't worry. In three days, he will rise again. All of these unbelievable claims about Jesus, about the resurrection, not only ours if we trust in Christ, but his after suffering was on their minds when they're asking this question. We think you're an idiot. And we're going to prove it by this absurd series of questions. And Jesus, knowing the heart, clearly knew why they were there and what they were about. He simply assesses the problem and he says this, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Now that's pretty easy to read, but it's unbelievably offensive to these men. These men who made it their business to know the law, the Torah, who made it their business, right, um, to know all about God and to be the demonstration of power. Here's what Jesus says. You, you know it in word, but you're clueless about its message. You have no concept here. The word wrong in, in the text, um, when Jesus confronts them in verse 24, it means to wander off track. Like you're, you're in the neighborhood, but you're missing the mark completely. This would be the equivalent of walking up to a mechanic and saying, you don't know anything about cars. It's absurd. That's how they would have heard it. This is offensive to us. The scriptures and power were the Sadducees' specialty. That's what they were known for. And for Jesus to go right after it and say, you don't know either was an assessing of the problem before he answered the question. It was, it was like declaring his position of authority right there at that moment in front of those who are trying to bring him down in front of the crowd. Now, look at the answer in verse 25. After he declares that they don't know the scripture or the power of God, he says, for when they rise from the dead. Now he's asking a tangible question about this one wife and the many brothers she was married to. He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor given in marriage, but are like angels 
like angels in heaven. Jesus just comes right out and confronts the error in their thinking. Now, two people are getting a message here, Pharisees and Sadducees. I know it's the Sadducees asking, but if you remember how the Pharisees felt about the afterlife, like it was just a continuation of what I have here, okay? That's why they could never answer the question, because they believed you would be married to your wife in the future. What was seven husbands and one wife, I don't know how to answer it. So Jesus confronts that error, and he goes after the Sadducees because he starts out with the the definitive article that there is definitely going to be a resurrection. He says in verse 25, without any explanation, for when they rise from the dead, they will. Three particular things are said in verse 25. There's a definite resurrection to come. There won't be married people or marriage in heaven. And we will be like the angels. Now, I'm going to deal with the first thing last in this particular order. Jesus has proof of the resurrection that we're going to get to in just a second. It's pretty powerful, but... But as far as the question is concerned, whose wife will she be? Answer, no one's. Because there is no marriage in heaven. Now, to some of you, that's a huge sigh of relief, okay? Whew. No, no more of this, all right? Well, let me explain why. And, and, and I, I'm just joking. Some of you might be truly disappointed to hear that. Like you in your mind would prefer a pharisaical version of future life. And, and so I'm going to try to tell you why that's not bad news and why it's good news. But here's why Jesus says, and the truth is that there is no marriage in heaven. Because marriage, it sounded like a movie, didn't it? What movie? Princess Bride. Marriage. All right. Because an earthly, because marriage is an earthly institution, period. End of story. It's not a heavenly one. Never was designed for that. In fact, if you know the scriptures, and I'm certain you do, you've been in church a long time, here's what the Bible says about marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God looked and said, it's not good for man to be alone. Hence, Eve. Make sense? So there was a need for this companionship that Genesis 2 puts forward for us. The scriptures also say in Genesis chapter 1 that we, to be fruitful and multiply, the reason for marriage was to extend mankind on the earth, to keep propagating people, Okay. If we move to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that marriage is is the context to fulfill sexual desires in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you really love a good story, then Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that marriage serves as a picture of Christ and his church and his people. So there's lots of reasons why God instituted marriage, but it's temporary and it's meant for here. And Jesus simply says there is no continuation of marriage in the future. It isn't just life like on earth, there. There's no marriage, because there's no death. That's the promise of eternal life, isn't it? Is that this sickness and this curse that we carry from our ancestor Adam that deals with all of us all the time is over, over then. God has made us new, and there is no need for us to multiply. There's no need for us to continue the race, because God has made us live again. There's no need for marriage, because we don't need companionship. Adam knew he was alone, but in heaven, in the presence of God, with Jesus as our Savior there, there will be no loneliness. There will be no need for a companion. We'll be full, as full can be, in the presence of God. In heaven, there'll be no need for pleasure, as, we, as 1 Corinthians talks about, to fulfill those intimate desires, because our ultimate pleasure, the Scriptures tells us, is found in Jesus. Everything the human heart longs for, Everything, even in the ways we express it in human condition, 
is fulfilled perfectly and wholly in Jesus. Okay? Satisfied only by Christ. Nothing else. Nothing else to fill us. That's why marriage is a temporary thing. Great. It is great. It's all good. But it's not a continuation. It's a transformation. Just like we're becoming like Christ this side of heaven, when we get there, we'll be fully like Christ, a total transformation, nothing like the old hanging around whatsoever. Now, I say that, and then I want to add this. We don't know from the scriptures everything that heaven will be like. We were having conversations at the preaching collective, like how much will you know your wife? How much will you know your kids? How much will all these relationships exist? And I don't know, like from a text, how to describe that. All I know is that it will be better. That's what heaven will be like. It, it will be better. It'll be, every scene will be better. Every picture will be better. Every relationship will be better. Every meal we eat will be better. All right? So much better. And, and we've said this enough in our conversations about future thought with Christ, but no sickness and no death, no curse, no loneliness, no fights, no wars, no poverty, no hunger, no six o'clock news with all the ugly stuff going on there. No more confusion and no more depression, no more fears and no more doubts, none whatsoever. No more longings, no more desires, no more wants, no more morning afters, no more shame, no more secrets. Absolutely satisfied and perfected in the presence of Jesus. It's better, church. That's why there's no need for continuation of this. This does lots of things. It reveals to us our need clearly. We need a Savior. It reveals to us our longing for something else. This perpetual dissatisfaction with even the good things means that He is what we wait for. Does that make sense? Okay. I know that uh, some might think it sounds sad that you won't be married to your wife or your husband in heaven, but if that's how you feel, then you're not listening. Here's not what I'm saying, okay? I'm not saying that you're going to suffer loss or be disappointed, okay? Here's what I want you to understand. No matter what our relationships will be like, they won't be worse. They'll be better. So let's pretend for a second that you have the best marriage that God ever put on the earth. It's going to be better. Relationships will be better. Every late relationship in heaven is going to be so much more than any relationship here, no matter how good it is. You have to believe that. If you are like disappointed that there is no marriage in heaven, then you have no concept of what God can do. You think this is all that there is. Uh, just picture it for a second. Knowing everybody fully. Like the kind of intimacy that you can only dream about in a marriage is fully experienced with every relationship in heaven. It's mind-blowing that you'll be that close to all the brothers and sisters in Christ and, and enjoy it. No matter what it is exactly like. It won't be bad. It will be great. Can I get an amen? Here's how one uh, writer described the hard to describe. He says this, present earthly experience is entirely insufficient to forecast divine heavenly realities. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto or the Grand Canyon at sunset. I thought that painted it pretty clear. We don't know. But it's awesome. It's, it's awesome. So when Jesus introduces this thought, like we'll be like the angels in heaven, 
He's simply referring to eternal life. Some have made the mistake of thinking that we'll have tasks or roles or looks like angels. That's not what he's saying. We're not going to look like angels. We're going to have their responsibilities. We won't do what they do. We won't have the same place in the kingdom, but we will live forever. And that's what he was saying. There is an eternal life, and that's what the, that's what the Sadducees did not believe in. We'll be like them, all right? Now, let me get back to the very first answer. And, and the Sadducees started this whole thing by quoting Moses, co- quoting the law to set up a question they thought Jesus couldn't answer, okay? So Jesus goes back after the issue of the resurrection, and guess how he does it? He does it with the law. So here's a group of guys who thought they were always winning the argument with the Pharisees because there is no proof of the resurrection in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament. And so Jesus simply goes back to probably the most familiar story to everyone. And that is the story of when God introduces himself to Moses in Exodus 3 and 4. Every Jew hung everything on that moment. That's when God introduced the law. So Sadducees, you're here. Pharisees also thought that. We're here. And so Jesus simply goes back to that moment and he brings that text up to prove the reality of the resurrection. He points out clearly what they had no concept of, what was unbelievably clear that they completely missed, okay? And it's very simple. It's the tense that God uses to describe his relationships with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? We're here. We don't have to turn back to Exodus because Jesus quotes it here. Jesus says, what God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and Jacob. He speaks of these men to Moses as men who are, not men who were. Men who had died hundreds of years before. And here is God in present tense form proving the reality that they're alive with him. I'm the God of these living men. That was his point. This is the one they didn't, we don't have the reflection of this, by the way. My guess is it just shut down the conversation. Okay? The Sadducees were wrong, dead wrong about the resurrection. And Jesus made that point very clear. And here's why they were. And it's verse 27. It's the last point I have for you this morning, and that is this. Because our God is the God of the living not the dead. That's what he says. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. That is the hope of the world. Amen? We have a God who raises dead people to life, not just spiritually speaking, but practically speaking in the life to come. He is the God of the resurrection. He's the God of the new birth. He's the God of transformed lives. And so I need you to listen real carefully as we wrap this up. There is a resurrection for everyone who dies. Absolute certain, write it down. That's what Jesus is saying here. But this is how Jesus describes that resurrection. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. For an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice, Jesus' voice, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection resurrection of of judgment. Now, if you're paying attention, you should ask a question. What makes a difference? How do I get resurrected to life? How do, what makes me be resurrected to death? What's the point here, okay? What's the dividing line? 
What makes the difference between those who've done good and those who've done evil? Now, religion in our world says efforts and activity, but there is a, a truth in the scriptures in, in Romans chapter three that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God that Isaiah the prophet kind of accentuates in his writings when he says, your best deeds, your righteous acts are like filthy rags to God. Nobody by works climbs a ladder to be approved by God who will receive life from it. Here's where life comes from, and this is how Jesus says it. In fir- or, or John tells us this reality in John chapter 5, verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Here's the reality of it. In Romans 3, when it presents us with the worst possible news that we are dead in our transgressions and sins, it also provides us the best news ever, but God provided a righteousness not of our own, a covering a holiness that we did not earn and we do not keep for ourselves. God gives it to us by faith in Christ. The dividing line about whether you're good isn't performance. What makes us good is Jesus for us and on us and in us, not what I do. So here's how, here's how any other religion in the world would see that passage in John chapter 5. Okay, if I'm going to merit some kind of eternal life, I better start keeping a list I watched the uh, football life last night of Roger Staubach, of who was a childhood idol of mine. And they got done, I don't know if you saw this story, but Roger, they got all done with telling his story. And typically in those kinds of um, presentations, they stop about three quarters of the way through and they start telling you all the bad news, what happened to him after. Well, they couldn't find anything bad about Roger. And all these men, these football players, saying he's the best man I've ever met in my life. I kept thinking to myself, yeah, but he doesn't know Jesus. And he probably is one of the best men you'll ever meet in your life. But without a holy, righteous provision from Christ through faith, he will stand before God as a sinner. Because God doesn't just measure whether you go to church or whether you're good and kind or whether you take care of your family. He goes right down to the core of your heart and measures your motives and why you do what you do and the secret intentions of the heart and the will. And in that spot, he finds every man guilty. Every man guilty. So what we need, we can't do on our own. What we need is Jesus for us. And it comes simply by faith. This is the profound difference between Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, and every other system on the planet. Every other religion has as its essence, fix it yourself. Christianity simply says you can't. So he did. Take it freely by faith and walk in that freedom. The good that merits eternal life is Jesus. The bad that merits death is you and me without Jesus. Does that make sense? I don't want you to confuse it. It isn't like go out and start working hard. It is be free in the grace of God that he provides. Confess Jesus. Believe on Jesus. Turn from your life to Jesus. Jesus is the beautiful, wonderful punchline to every question we could ever fathom in our minds. Jesus, he's the pursuit. He's the longing of men's hearts. That's who he is to us. If you're a Christian in here, I've got just some final thoughts maybe to consider. I personally confess, I think this is a hard thing to keep on the forefront of my thinking all the time because I'm busy doing. Can you relate to that? It's hard to have the reality of the resurrection so affect us that we don't live like everyone else lives or like we used to live. It's hard to live there, but let me ask you a question and make some observations. How would your life change 
if you really focused on what Jesus says about the resurrection? How would it be different? Let me give you some thoughts. Maybe we'd spend less time worrying about things. Maybe the church would lose its attachment to the temporal things that this world offers. Not, not to be, you know, monkish. I'm just saying we wouldn't stress about the things that don't really merit those future hopes. Maybe. Maybe we would stop frantically trying to extend our life and we'd try to make our life count for something. Maybe the church could do that. I just want to live. I just want to live at all costs. I, don't wonder, I wonder sometimes if you really believe that God numbers your days, why do you do it? Now, I'm not suggesting don't exercise. That's my method, okay? But, but I'm just saying, why do you stress about it? If God's the one who precisely knows the second you're done, and your future is glory, and it's only going to get great. Maybe we should focus our attentions on how to make our life matter and how to make, a, make an impact versus how do I extend it. Maybe. Maybe we make um, knowing Christ the priority of our life. Maybe if I'm spending eternity with him, and I know this much, maybe I would not waste a single minute of my life if I got to know him this much, right? It would all last forever. Maybe. Maybe the choices we'd make would look different. Maybe we wouldn't do or say what we would do if we really believed in the resurrection or thought about it all the time. To those of you who are hurting or lonely or whatever, maybe we'd grieve differently. Maybe we really would act like this is temporal. Just a small little pixel in the timeline of eternity, all of which God's doing some kind of transformative work in my life. Maybe I wouldn't grieve like those who have no hope. Maybe I would hope, and maybe it would shape my grief. Maybe we'd be so uh, much more urgent to tell other people about this God of the living versus somewhat indifferent. He truly is everything Jesus said he was. I don't, I don't know where people come from or whatever the concepts of God are or the future is, but Jesus presents the gospel top to bottom, front to back in this passage. God is the God of living. Jesus came to this earth to rescue sinners who could not rescue themselves. Faith in Christ alone is what gives you hope for tomorrow. It's what makes you know the God of the living. Amen, church? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this reminder again that you are uh, numbering our days and that for those who have placed their trust in Christ, we have a better day tomorrow than today. That everything is completely met and satisfied in Christ now and forever. So we want to say thank you in advance. I pray, God, you keep our, our perspective right. Keep us earthly um, kind of distant while we think about tomorrow with you. God, I thank you for the gospel. It shows up in every text we see it. Thank you that it saves sinners like us. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.